recently come to my attention that I am the most brilliant man that I have ever met. I say that facetiously, and I think you all know it. Sometimes when taking the pulpit, having the privilege and the responsibility to open up God's Word and to bring it to all of you from week to week, not as your only means of Bible study, but as a means of corporate worship that we do together. The word choice that I use comes across as though my opinion is the only opinion that matters. I want you all to know that that is not the case. I speak with authority when I speak on biblical topics, and normally there is a great deal of conviction that I have around how those things should be applied and understood, but from time to time in the practice of reading God's Word, that application becomes personal. It should become personal for the Christian. But I'm not the most brilliant man that I've ever met. When I say things, I am not always right. When I read God's Word, He is always right. There's no exception, and there is no conviction that goes beyond this reality that what God says is true, when He says it, it is true, and that truth has not changed from the very beginning. How does that play out in the life of the Christian? Over the past few weeks, we have entered into Hopefully what will be maybe, I say it might be the last series that we do to finish up our study of the book of Ephesians, but I know in reality we might just make our way to verse 20 and stop there. We've been looking at what does it mean in light of everything that Paul has written in the book to the church or rather the letter to the church in Ephesus, what does it mean to live out your faith? And we've explored these different components, that you were first in sin, that you are brought out of sin through Christ's justifying, adoptive, redemptive work, that this redemptive work plays in the manifest sense to the church, that through the church this is supposed to extol the believers in the way that they live with one another, that it's supposed to have application not just in corporate worship, but it has application now in our private lives and the way that we conduct ourselves. Moving beyond that, it has implications and applications for the way that we're supposed to perceive and understand our position in the world. That is these things and issues of spiritual worship. The church is not a human institution. It was not created or formed that a pastor could come and stand in a pulpit and tell you what to think. That's not my job. If you don't agree with me, that's all right. What unites us in the church is the redemptive work of Christ that brings us together. And there is absolutely unity in the gospel. If you need more on that, I would refer you back to Ephesians chapter 3. That there is unity in the gospel, that it binds us together, that it holds us together in a simple truth. That isn't to say, though, that the world agrees with this notion. In fact, it's not even to say that there are not churches in this world that, as 
John would refer to them, are synagogues of Satan. What are we to do then as Christian brothers and sisters identified together in this ecclesiastical structure that we call church? We're supposed to worship God. What is true spiritual warfare? It's worshiping God in everything that we do. If you've been with us for some time, you know that that's where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. If you haven't already, I'd ask you to open your Bibles to that chapter. As we prepare to read together God's Word, to study it and to ask God to lead us in the examination of what His Word means, to apply it clearly to its original context and understand its implications in our lives today. To do all of those things, we can only come to God in prayer. Pray with me then. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for a heart of worship that you have placed in our congregation. God, for bringing together a group of people who are failed and flawed and simply want to seek you. God, be with us in our convictions and our burdens. Not that they would become yours, but that those convictions and burdens would be yours as we surrender to realizing that the only way that will ever happen is if we open our eyes to the amazing truth found in your law. And as Scripture reveals, God, I do not think I am capable of doing that on my own, but I plea with you that you would not withhold your amazing truths from me, but that you would be the work at opening my eyes, at softening my heart. Humbly, we turn to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Our focus this morning is on the shoes of the gospel of peace. We've already spent our time over the past two weeks talking about this belt of truth that girds up all of the pieces of armor that God has laid before us. Last week, we looked at the breastplate of righteousness that Christians are exhorted to put on, not to make for themselves, but to take what God has given them and to actually put it on them. 
And we've explored the different implications of this, that it should be imperative for Christians to evaluate the truth that they are standing on, careful to walk circumspectly to the world, to ensure that the truth that we stand on is real truth. It's so easy to think that our preferences and our privilege in this world and the things that we think are important are the things of truth that we should stand on. Even secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues can become our own idol in many senses, that this would be the truth that I want to cling to. That my political preferences, that my uh, cultural exegesis or even eisegesis into the Word of God is the truth that I need to stand on. There is no truth outside of what God has revealed in His Word. Careful to stand on that, it defines righteousness for us. When we put on this breastplate of righteousness, our job as Christians is to be in obedience. Realizing, though, that righteousness in the life of the Christian is not something that the Christian does on their own. Even if you're saved, even if you're justified in Christ, even if God has worked in your life to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel, you cannot be righteous on your own. Just like salvation and its justification was not an act of man responding or pursuing God, it was God pursuing man and opening man's heart, softening it and everything else, so too sanctification is an act of God, which is the redemption of that person's body and, and, and their life and their thoughts and everything about them. That's why when we look at what God is teaching us, we do not simply look at God's Word as a measure of seeking information for our brains, but rather transformation. This is the truth that comes with the Bible when we're sensitive to it and we open up to it. And as we look this morning at the shoes for our feet, I am reminded that all of this points back to the command in verse 14, stand therefore. On truth. Now this has been, I think, misappropriately applied that the shoes of the gospel peace are given to us in spiritual warfare that we can run this way and we can run that way and we can do all of these different things. But let me give you my understanding of this. Right? To understand the Bible, one of the first things that we have to do is we have to put it in its appropriate context, which includes the historical context. When Paul was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, the idea of armor would have pointed to the armor of the Roman Empire. The shoes that Roman warriors wore, well, they were quite unique. They were half boot, half sandals. But what makes them really unique was driven into the bottom of them was a nail-like substance. They were like cleats. They weren't built for running this way and that way. They were built for standing strong for remaining firm, for holding ground, for when the enemy comes against you, being able to not relent. When spiritual warfare and issues of different schemes of the devil through this world come against the church, the shoes of gospel peace exist to stand firm. It's an issue of holding your ground. And it all comes back to this issue of the belt of truth, girding everything up. 
It's not just an issue of resistance. It's an issue of relying on truth. I don't know how many times this issue will come up in our exposition of God's word, but if you are standing on truth, you don't have to change positions. Lots of people think that they're standing on truth, but from day to day, they change position over here to over there to over here, and they keep changing their minds. If you have to change your mind about what truth is, it was not truth to begin with. Because truth does not change. We should be careful to see what we are standing for, that it is for the right things. And if we find ourselves standing for the wrong things, we should be quick to repent if we have found ourselves standing for them. If truth makes up the belt or the gird of our spiritual armor, standing firm without truth simply looks like being caught with your belt around your ankles. It doesn't matter what kind of cleats you're wearing if your belt is around your ankles. Stand firm. Self-righteousness, self-serving, self-loving idolatry should be repented of as quickly as we realize what we have done. Do not be dissuaded to think that because you have offended someone, though, by standing in truth, that what you need to do is to move. This is an important part. This gospel of peace allows us to hold our position. The truth is, when we look at the Bible and we really look at everything that it says, we find many cases of it being unadulteratedly offensive. That's the reason for putting on the feet, for the readiness of gospel peace. That's what we'll be exploring this morning. We must take time to understand that truth is a foundational element to putting on the shoes of gospel peace. In many ways, this word that Paul uses, gospel, which you all know to mean good news, has been misused in evangelical and church circles to mean something that it has no business meaning. This is troublesome. And I hope it does not come as a new revelation for you to hear that the gospel is not simply Jesus loves you. That's some good news, but it's not the good news. The gospel is not simply live like Jesus and you will be in heaven. Well, not only is that not good news, it's not true. The gospel is the whole Bible. It's the whole truth. And the whole truth starts offensively. Of the condition of man, John 8, says, You are of your father the devil, and you will, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's your human nature, the Bible's speaking of. You are a child of the devil. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no exception. Everyone is a sinner. Lamentations 2.5, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its places. He has laid it in ruin, its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Not only does the Bible clearly tell us that everyone is born a sinner, but it tells us that our sin condition makes us an enemy of God. Paul tells of the people who would want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things that they boast, writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, He goes on in this verse through 13 and 15 to say, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then in his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Man, you and I are natural enemies to God because we have been born into a condition that makes us rebellious towards him. Even blinds us to his goodness and the love that he offers us. Now, when I say good news, isn't that what you all think of? That's some good news. You were born an enemy of God. The Bible describes you as a child of the devil. Amen. It gets better. Of the judgment of God, Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Numbers 22, 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Oh, God's not just passively anonymity with man who is rebellious and a sinner, but he is his adversary. Ezekiel 25, 17, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Enmity with God isn't just something that we passively speak about, but the reality of it is, is it comes with God's judgment because he is just. Amen. Isn't that the gospel that you think of? The truth hurts. My friends, I tell you, I am preaching the gospel to you this morning. If you are offended, it is because the gospel is offensive. Anyone who would take anything out of this presentation of the gospel has the belt of truth around their ankles. When you preach the whole Bible, the world will hate you. Even those who call themselves Christians who have fallen into the deceit of false teachers that promote a all love and no condemnation type of gospel, they will ridicule you and call you hateful. The world will write you off as an extremist. Perhaps some of you have already written me off as an extremist. Let's be clear. 
If the world thought Christians living with zeal were simply a radical movement, they wouldn't fight so hard against Christians by trying to change them. By legislating changes in tax laws, by passing anti-religious legislation in several states. That's a spiritual issue. The schemes and authorities of the rulers who masquerade in the cosmic places as angels of light are at work. 1 John 3.13, the Apostle John writes, Do not be surprised that the world hates you. I'm not surprised that the gospel offends some. John 15, 18, Jesus speaking now, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. John, 1 John 4, 6, Little children, you are from God and are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Any genuine born-again believer who hears the gospel from the beginning concerning the condition of man in a fallen state and also God's righteous judgment doesn't just recoil at how offensive it is, but he says, that's what makes the gospel of peace so great. We'll look at it more because I want to show you this morning that this condemnation isn't the end of the gospel, that the shoes that allow us to stand firm, to hold our ground, these different components of spiritual defense that are called to stand in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of His might, these things all come together and pull together to prepare the church for the world that hates Jesus and hates His people. My friends, I don't say this just to be cantankerous. I I don't just bring up these things to, to stir you up or make you pay attention to what I'm saying. This is the gospel that Jesus taught. How many times when reading through the gospels do we find Jesus preaching the truth of the word, that he was the living water, all of these different things? How many times has he immediately met with the opposition of the people who want to kill him? The pursuit of killing Jesus didn't begin with the crucifixion. It began with his ministry because he proclaimed truth. And if we understand this condition of man, we know that the blindness that is born in a sinful state also causes man to resist truth. The gospel will get you in trouble if you stand for truth. If you form a place of love, or I'm sorry, if you from a place of love tell someone that they are in sin and they are not truly from God or falling, failing to abide in Him, they may just run away. They may just pursue their sinful desires over returning to God because such is the condition of sin. But this picture of rubbing people the wrong way does not exist in the Bible to give Christians license to be offensive. It, it doesn't give us license to simply rub people the wrong way and ruffle feathers or stir the pot. 
The truth is the gospel must exist with the whole gospel. That's why I said that truth must be substantiated in the whole revelation of God through His holy word. When it comes to preaching on the condemnation that man deserves, I look to Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I look to the message that Jesus gave the apostles in John 16, 13, when he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Because it ultimately points to something greater than we could ever imagine. The gospel, that is. In John's revelation of Christ in heaven in chapters 22, Um, of Revelation, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were there, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and in His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light." And they will reign forever and ever. That's where we're going. The gospel's offensive because it takes us to this place. The gospel's offensive because it points to reconciliation. Notice what Paul says the gospel of peace. Doesn't it sound peaceful when I talk about condemnation and judgment? Of course it doesn't. That's just the first part of the gospel. The second part is the peace. Loved ones, we must constantly be evaluating the truth that we hold to so that we can be sure that we are standing for the right things. We must invite critics into our lives that we can trust and help us to stay on the right path because the nature of sin is it causes blindness. The nature of sin is it literally puts a veil over your eyes and keeps you from seeing the truth. We must be zealous in refusing to withhold truth In an unloving way, we must see that not rebuking someone who is in sin is, in fact, unloving. We must be willing to mess up. We have to be willing to make mistakes. I mean, that's where the depth of relationships come from. That's where the whole picture of this unity in Christ comes from, that I trust that people's motivation is in glorifying God. If we rebuke someone and we do it carelessly and recklessly, Well, repent, say sorry, and move on. Be reconciled. Isn't that the gospel message? Now, here's the real problem. When instead of going through all that rigmarole of apologizing and reconciling and humbling yourself and all of that, well, I'll just spare myself the trouble, and instead of telling somebody that they're a sinner, I'll just move on. I'll let them continue to live in their sin. 
What's the consequence? A church that doesn't know the breastplate of righteousness. What's the consequence? A church that doesn't have relationships that reflect true Christian communion with God. Do not be afraid to be wrong. But be afraid to stay wrong. Do not be surprised when the world hates you. Because the truth that you have proclaimed, church, the truth that we understand, well, there's more to the story. That is the gospel of peace. The way that we live our lives after standing on truth is this message of peace. Now, we are careful as much as it has to do in standing with truth when we talk about this as not capitulating to a culture that wants to weaken the church because it is a culture that belongs to Satan himself, has more to do with our readiness, and pay attention to this, has to do with our readiness to peace. I said, Christians, you should be cautious not to simply run around and offend everyone that you come in contact with. Because there is a connection to the offensive nature of truth and the gospel of peace. What is peace if there is nothing to make peace over? Now, this is something that's been twisted in a lot of ways and in a lot of different situations. People understand peace to simply mean that there is an absence of conflict. Well, that I have peace because, well, I'm not currently fighting. I'm not currently adversarial towards this person or that person. That's not peace. And that's not the gospel. If you think that your peace with God is simply that he's not your adversary anymore, well, you're missing the greatest part of the whole story, that in fact you get to call him friend. Consider your neighbor. Consider your neighbor that you don't know, a person living in your neighborhood. You haven't met them yet. You don't know their first name. Would you say that you live peacefully with them? No. You don't know them. When we lived in Bella Vista, we had a neighbor named Barbara who lived next to us, and she was a sweet lady. She was a retired florist. And you could tell that she was a retired florist because she had an immaculate yard. I mean, truly immaculate. She had hydrangeas that were taller than I am. It was beautiful. And being a first-time person living in a house, taking care of it for myself, all I always cared about was my career, I did not care about taking care of my yard at all. In fact, that's why I had a rock yard. When the fall came and the leaves fell, well, Barbara spent a lot of her time, and you have to imagine this. This is a 75-year-old woman out with her leaf blower, keeping the leaves off of her beautiful plants, taking care to uh, take care of her plants and make sure that they're covered and that they're nurtured, and she's loving them. Well, I didn't really know Barbara. I just knew she had a pretty yard. I wasn't at peace with her. You know what brought peace between me and Barbara? When she hobbled over to my front door and said, do you mind doing something with your leaves? I'm working really hard to keep my yard nice. And all the leaves blow up on the east side of your house because we lived on top of a hill. 
And I do all this work and they just blow right back into my yard. So thankful Barbara was willing to confront me for being a bad neighbor. Because what transpired after that was I said, well, Miss Barbara, how about this? Whoever you have come take care of your leaves for you, why don't you just have them take care of my yard too? And I'll just split the difference with you on, the, on what you pay them. And there was peace. When the time came that one of the bushes in our front yard started getting this black mold on it, well, I hobbled my way up the hill to Miss Barber's house, the florist. And I said, help. Because we weren't just strangers to one another, but we were friends. Peace is more than an absence of conflict. The divine gift of reconciliation seeks and finds us in the situation of enmity and estrangement with God. But it builds beyond that. Romans 5.15 says, it elaborates that the free gift is not like the trespass. And this is in light of verse 8, which says, while you were still sinners. Because the divine gift is something greater. This is exactly as Paul has been writing in this letter through Ephesians 2. Uh, particularly when he contrasts the enmity that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And he draws this picture that there is reconciliation between these nations. That we even see God's plan in all of this is that the church would become the foundation of reconciling the whole world. That in fact, even our eschatological or our end times understanding of what is to come is that the church will become the redemption of Israel. This contrast between enmity, this newfound peace through the gospel, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 to remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is the, and what's this word? Peace. Christ is the peace. He's the peace who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Our peace with God is something bigger than no longer being His enemy. Our peace with God is being a part of His household. Being able to call ourselves His children. Being able to say, I'm God's friend. Loved ones, this is the doctrine of reconciliation. Let me give you the foundations of it. First, that we were enemies of God. The motive and the rationale of reconciliation, though, belongs with God. Now think about this. This is why the gospel is important. This is why it's important to be offensive. Because there is no movement of man that says, I'm going to go be God's friend. No, if you say that, you don't understand sin at all. Because sin blinds us. It's ensnarement. It's entrapment. It is slavery, as the Bible describes it. God 
decides and is motivated by his love to reconcile man to make him a friend, even though he has no trespass, even though he has not offended man, even though he has not worked against God. God, in his loving will and sovereign decision, decides that he will pursue man. That's Romans 5.8. Not only is he the motive, but God is also the action. He does all the work. The self-giving of the Son onto death of the cross. That's what makes reconciliation possible. Colossians 1.22 tells us that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Well, he's done the work of reconciling you. Romans 5.10 says that if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Well, that's mortification. That's what we talked about last week. That's where righteousness comes from. It goes on in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 21 goes on. For our sake... He has made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's reconciling love does not work itself out in man pursuing God or deciding that he will one day love him. It works itself out in God saying, you were my enemy and I fixed it. I paid the price for you. It doesn't work out in the way that our human wisdom would teach us in existing schemes. Rather, it breaks up everything that we think exists. It contradicts and overthrows the schemes and the establishments and the structures of our world. This is the reconciliation between Jew and Greek. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. But far be it from me to boast except that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Loved ones, this morning what I want you to hear is that the whole gospel begins in a way that the world doesn't want us to preach the gospel. In fact, many churches have even avoided such texts that would condemn us or make us realize enmity with God. And on the other side, there have been churches that have preached nothing else. The whole gospel is not one or the other, but it is the whole thing. That from enmity is established peace. The act of God's reconciliation with us is so powerful that, that God reconciled humanity is so powerful that we must understand it in terms 
of a whole new creation. I mean, consider this for a moment, right? You look out in the world, you see everything that's going on, and, and you, look, you wake up and you look out the window and you see a tree and you see a bird fly down and it flutters on a branch and the, the branch bounces delicately, which makes a squirrel jump off and all of these different things, and you think, this is so intricate and amazing and lovely. Romans 1 tells us, this is the manifold wisdom of God displayed throughout the universe, this natural revelation. You see that and you say, wow, this is amazing. Creation's amazing. And it is. You'd be right. So too is the fact that God created a new you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. What God has done in the whole picture of the gospel is amazing. It's like creating everything out of nothing. And by the way, he did that too. Problem is, we stop there and we don't live our lives with the implication of this doctrine of reconciliation, that there would be peace among the people that there, as the Barman Theological Declaration... Isn't that exciting? Are you guys getting excited hearing what I'm going to quote? Yes. Through Christ befalls us a joyful deliverance from the godless fetters of the world for a free, grateful service to His creatures. And so... Grace makes its free and joyful advocates and ambassadors to be reconciled to God in Christ is to be conscripted to the cause of that very same reconciling power. So often, whether it's because we do not want to be offensive or deal with everything that comes with actually reconciling to a brother or sister, we neglect that because we have been reconciled to God, there is a way we are supposed to live in our life. Two things. We're supposed to be ambassadors of this message of reconciliation, and we are supposed to be practitioners of God's reconciliation. Bonhoeffer observed in a similar vein that there was a relationship between a Christian congregation and the world which is determined by God's relationship to the world. Christians are to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. That means we're supposed to extend the arm inviting people into a reconciled relationship with God. We have to be working to make the gift of our friendship with God known and available to all who believe in the world. But I think maybe before we could do that, and perhaps more important, Christians are to be practitioners of reconciliation. This new friendship, this peace, must be demonstrated in our lives. The New, Lang the new Testament language gives us an understanding of 
this different how reconciliation plays out through the words that it uses in describing Christians, that there is faith, hope, love, freedom, obedience, humility, gratitude, joy, self-giving. But these are simply the inverse of what it looks like to be with enmity with God. The reconciliation, the reason why Christians should be eager to confront a brother or sister in sin, the reason why we should put on the breastplate of righteousness, the reason why we should gird up the belt of truth, the reason all of these things should come together is because we are running with zeal to bring people into faith and love and joy and peace. Philip Zeigler, when writing on the doctrine of um, reconciliation, writes that actually to live a life of friendship with God is the hope and prayer of individual Christians. It is also the hope and prayer of Christian communities, and it is the hope and prayer of Christians for the world. Faith rightly longs for a world of familial, social, economic, and political relations to be drawn out of their continued futile and absurd and unknowing enmity with God so that they may become spheres where the practice of reconciliation can take place. The performance of genuine human freedom before God and with one another is found, welcomed, and celebrated when we understand the whole gospel. It touches every area of life. Loved ones, do we pray for these things and fail to make practice of pursuing them? To be a practitioner of reconciliation, to publicly live out our friendship with God, recognizing and celebrating the work that He has done to make this possible. To be an ambassador. God's grace is so much bigger than we'll ever know. Peace is so much more valuable than we could ever communicate. It's there so that we can stand on the truth, extending an arm of peace, willing to be wrong. My last point I haven't looked at the clock until now, and I apologize for running a little bit over. We'll run through this last point quickly because I think you'll see it quickly. So far, we've pointed out that the command and the connection with the feet of righteousness or the, go- the, the shoes of gospel peace exist not so we can run, but so that we can stand. We've looked at the word peace to explain what the gospel is. And last, I want to bring your attention to what verse 15 says is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The preparedness that comes. Christians, you will not be prepared to extend peace to anyone if you don't know what it is. If you do not spend time girding up truth, there will simply be no readiness to extend the gospel to anyone. Much like we explored the meaning of the phrase to put on last week when discussing the breastplate of righteousness, we are told to put on as shoes for our feet gospel peace. The word I draw your attention to now, this readiness 
It, it cannot move from the truth that has been given to us in God's word. That means that we cannot appease those who have been offended by what the gospel proclaims. Instead, standing firm, we must be ready to welcome them. We must be prepared to invite them to peace. Perhaps the most startling hallmark of a truly Christian person is how quickly they are willing not just to forgive, but to reconcile because it is the measure by which they understand what God has done for them. We live out reconciliation in our lives when we forgive one another. The scriptural teaching on forgiveness is astounding because it points us to the reality that, well, as Jesus taught, if somebody has something against you, you are to get up and to go to them and to try and make it right. It says if somebody's done something wrong against you, you're supposed to forgive them as Christ has already forgiven you. And what's that mean? Simply to forgive and move on? Forgive and cut them out of your life? Or is the real Christian testimony seen in our ability to reconcile? To pursue peace? I have so many notes this morning. The implications of being ready with the gospel message, I'll try to summarize it as best I can, is to admit that you might be wrong. To live in community with one another means to be vulnerable. There's nothing more vulnerable with maybe being wrong. So often we live in our Christian circles and in our Christian bubbles with an attitude that We have to be careful what we say, and we have to be so cautious that, in fact, we even neglect to say anything at all. That will not build up the church. It will only tear the church down. Because rather than proclaiming truth, we'll be silent. Rather than living out righteousness, we'll keep secrets. And rather than having friendships, We'll have acquaintances. Because peace is more than just an acquaintance. Loved ones, the reconciliation of God is His work. You can be His friend. If you'll make Him Lord of your life, which also means submitting to what he says is truth. Father in heaven, thank you for our church. Thank you for your word. Father, guide us this morning in worship. Guide us that we might know how to respond. And we cannot do that by somebody telling us what to do, but only from your spirit inside of us, guiding us, opening our hearts, softening us. God, would you lead us?
to respond as a congregation this morning that you might be glorified. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?